I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles again to 1 Peter. The passage that I particularly want us to look at begins in verse 13. But I'm going to just kind of as background and a, a little bit of a review from uh, last month when I was here. And we were looking at verses 1 through 12. And so I'll even just give a little bit of a review so that as we re read through this first portion again, maybe it will bring some things back to mind. Last month, um, and again, I have the privilege of being with you again today, and Lord willing, about another month from now, uh, be back, and I'll, I'll be again in First Peter. The overarching theme is salvation. Salvation. In those first 12 verses, I propose to you the, and, and the title of the message was The Wonder of It All, because he gives us just a picture of the amazing grace and power and love of God to us in the gift of salvation, and how the very gift of salvation and what we receive when we receive salvation, we'll read about receiving an inheritance, we'll read about receiving a living hope. And as we, we talk about and just meditate on all of these things that Jesus Christ in his mercy and in his love has given to us, we should just be struck with awe and wonder. And we should just be humbled to a, a large degree. So we'll come back to it just a little bit, but as we start reading those, those first 12 verses, I want you to be thinking of all that God has given us in salvation. And then the passage we'll look at a little bit more this morning in depth from 13 to the end of the chapter. And I've entitled uh, this continuation of the message on salvation, the calling of salvation. And I'm not talking about the effectual calling. I'm talking about, okay, now what does God, now that he has given us this precious gift What's he called us to do? What's he called us to be? Let's hear now as we read from God's word from 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, 
though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, bless to us this morning this precious word, this good news that you have given to us. Illuminate our minds. Help us to see and understand, Lord, your purpose for us in this great plan of salvation. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a little bit of a review, I want to take you back a little bit to the imagery that the Apostle gives us here and how he discusses or describes those 
people who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. At the very beginning, he calls them what? Elect exiles. And so you have to put that and kind of put yourself in that position. And I think sometimes we don't mind putting ourselves in the elect position. Oh, I'm called? Oh, yeah, okay, I like that. But we have a hard time relating with this whole exile concept. Let me give you just a a little bit of an idea. So I I don't know what caused me to do it, but I, I, I didn't mention that in my traveling out here last month, I bought an RV. So this RV, when I got the title to it, it said it had 87 square feet. 87 square feet, that's a little less than a 9 by 10 room. I really don't, I don't know how they did the math there because it doesn't have that much. And so we're traveling out here, my wife and I, and two dogs. It's tight. And the first night we stopped and there was this incredible thunderstorm that occurred during the middle of the night. And throughout the day, we had been going through it and getting, I mean, thankfully, we did not get hailed on, but we went through places where there was literally about six inches of hail standing on the ground. It was like God dumped out Morton salt, you know. It, it was something, Judy, Judy turned to me and said, I'm glad I'm with you because there's no way you could have described this to me. I'm like, well, that's a positive way of looking at it. And so that night, the winds battered and the rains poured down, lightning, thunder everywhere. But we didn't get wet. And we still had running water and bathroom facilities there with us. I say that to say, even in that condition, we had it better than most exiles. Because remember, we talked about an exile really is stripped of pretty much everything except their physical life. They're stripped of their social status. They're stripped of their economic status. They're stripped of any political status. They become come just people to care for. Because they are not many times able to care for themselves if you've ever been to a refugee camp. And it's not just two people and two dogs living in a, a, a trailer that gives us maybe 87 square feet. I don't think so. But maybe you have an entire family living in a tent that is less in size and less in its capabilities. I'm not saying that's true for all exiles, but try to imagine yourself because we live in the comfort of our homes. We live in the comfort of our surroundings. And I think it's difficult for us to wrap our heads around the idea of being an exile. But that is what the Apostle Peter calls us. And my point was life of an exile is not easy. 
And so right off the bat, Peter gives people who are in in difficult situation, who perhaps life's circumstances and situation, they are struggling. But he says, guess what you have? You have salvation. And so even though you are in exile, you are not a victim. You are a child of the living, holy God. And by being such, you have been given a living hope and you've been given an inheritance awaiting you in heaven that is imperishable. So he kind of flips the tables on this concept of being in exile. Because we may not have much in this world, but if we have our faith in Jesus Christ, we have more than most of this world can even imagine. And as he finishes that first passage, you might say, we have something of cosmic proportions. Things that even the angels long to look into. But as we concluded last month, we have all of these things. But you know, the gospel did not come to you and the gospel did not come to me to sit idly. And it did not come for us to to have as some sort of prized possession that we want to put on the mantelpiece and just walk by and say, Look there, see what I have? I have salvation. No, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And and this morning I'd like to to suggest to you that the gospel comes to us in order to go through us. When I was getting ready to retire from the military and I was trying to figure out what direction I might go, I... I'd been doing a lot of, uh, of coaching in, in the military with junior chaplains and things of that nature. And so I, I was investigating becoming a, 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 a coach for Christian leaders and all. And I, I came across a gentleman by the name of Tony Giles, uh, who now I consider a, a dear friend, lives in Tennessee. And I was exploring his go- uh, the program that they had uh, for coaching and uh, he called it, uh, they called it gospel coaching. So uh, as I was, you know, my, uh, talk about myopic, my world was the military world. And so I understood that, but I didn't understand this, this civilian thing. So, so quite often I would be talking with my son, uh, Derek. And he was a great value to me because I'd suggest some things and he's like, Dad, you may want to rethink that. That may work in the military, but it's not going to work in the civilian. Uh, I'm like, thanks a lot. And so I said, hey, Derek, have you ever heard of, of gospel coaching? And he's like, no, but dad, gospel's the buzzword these days. Everything's gospel this, gospel that. So he said, just check it out. He said, because, you know, you go through phases and marketers put things in front of it. And, and it's sh- sure enough, as I started looking through Christian books and new books that were being written, Everything had the word gospel in front of it. And so I had to check this out. So I got to, uh, uh, I called up 
Mr. Giles, and I said, okay, what do you mean by gospel coaching? And I really, his, his answer kind of changed my thinking. He says, you know, I get a lot of pastors, I get a lot of Christian leaders who want to come to me and they want to say, you know, my, my, my congregation's telling me I need to preach better. Can you help me be a better preacher? Or they're telling me I need this maybe and I, I want to do this. How can I learn to do this better? Can I learn to be a better administrator? Uh, what can I do to be a better preacher? And, and, and he said, you know, I'll talk to him, and he says, they really don't understand what I'm saying at first, but he says, I'm really not interested in those things. I'm not interested in a self-improvement model of how they can be a better them. What I'm interested is what the gospel is doing in their lives. How is the gospel impacting their ministry? How is it being, as he would put it, pushed down into their lives that it flowed out? And we'll talk a little bit more about that because I think a lot of people think uh, the gospel is a self-help program. Oh, oh yeah, I know. I, I need to quit doing this. I need to quit doing this. I need to quit doing this. So maybe I need to start going to church so I can clean my act up. God's not interested in you cleaning your act up. God's interested in making a new creation out of you. And so this morning, I'm going to suggest three things that the apostle gives us here that that the gospel can be pushed into our lives and propel us forward. I'm not a nautical guy. I'm an army guy, okay? So my, my, my understanding of nautical things is very basic and limited. But picture, I, I know, though, that when you get in a, in, in a boat and you have a motor and you put that motor, it, you could turn it on and it'll go around, but until it goes into the water, it doesn't push that boat forward. That's what we're talking about. Where it's not just spinning around. What does the gospel mean, though? Three blades to this propeller that when it goes into your life can push us forward. The first is that of being obedient. It talks about therefore, again, therefore that you've received the gospel from verses 1 through 12. In verse 13, therefore, Prepare your minds, be sober-minded, set fully on the grace as obedient children. And it also had talked about obedience actually up in the first portion, and he'll mention obedience a little bit later in this passage that we're in this morning. And so, and, and we're going to look at it a little bit differently because most of us almost think, yes, it's, it's back to that, how can I clean my act up? How can, I, how can I obey a certain set of rules that will make me a good Christian? But notice the way he qualifies this. As obedient children, 
So he puts us automatically in the context, you might say, of, of parent to child. And parenting is a challenge. Those of us who are parents and uh, have kids who are now parents, it's interesting. We have, we have four children. They have four different styles of parenting, all four of them. So it's, it's kind of, uh, we just smile as we go to our different children's uh, homes and we see how they are doing it. And it's kind of almost fitting because it matches more their personality. But you can see in those different styles are the rules set by the parents to be a straitjacket and try to make that child as miserable as they can possibly be. And you know that's not true. Now, sometimes the child might want to rebel against it. Why do I have to go to bed right now? I don't want to go to bed right now. I don't want to eat my vegetables. I don't want to do what you say. Okay, we'll let you do what you want. We'll let you live without boundaries. We'll let you live chaotically. Are we helping that child at all? Are we setting them up for success or for failure? You know the answer. And so he looks at us as obedient children. Do we see God as somebody who's just set a bunch of rules up there that we're to be constricted by? Or that indeed our Father loves us and wants us to live life abundantly? Even from the beginning in Genesis, when God was giving Adam and Eve their instructions to work and to enjoy all the good things that he's made. And he says, hey, eat from everything, but don't eat from the tree of, of, of the knowledge of good and evil. Was that because he was trying to withhold and punish them? That's what Satan would have them believe. Or was he saying, you've got it really good. Enjoy this life I'm giving you. But yes, our sinful nature, they were tempted and they died. In Joshua, Joshua chapter 1, where God is, is really giving the commission to Joshua. And what's part of the commission? Stay on the path. Don't veer to the left or right. This is what you need so that you will be successful in the land that the Lord God is going to give you. The rules were not there to punish. The rules were not there to constrict. The rules were there to provide life and success. And another illustration that is very pertinent, you might say, is that of the rich young ruler in Luke 18 who comes to Jesus and in a sense trying to justify himself says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus gives him 
a little bit, okay, let's, let's see how you're doing on the checklist. And he says, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your mother and father. And at this point, he must have been just smiling. Yes, I have done those things. I have, I have committed, I have, I have done the checklist of obedience. And then Jesus flips it again on its head and says, one thing Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. You see, he had bought into to the idea that if I'm outwardly obedient, which was really a selfish obedience, that I will have eternal life. But when Jesus challenged him to do something with his wealth, his earthly treasure, what did he do but become sad and walk away? The gospel did not propel him. In his mind, his good works were sitting like a mantle on a mantelpiece, a trophy on a mantelpiece to see what I have done. And it was useless. On the other hand, we have the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan, you know the story. You have this man who was robbed and beaten along the side of a road. And you have good, two good rule keepers. Two really good people who knew how to check off the list of obedience. You had a priest go by. You had a, um, a, a, a rabbi go by. A priest and a Levite. But they couldn't do anything because it might break the rules. So they went by on the other side. But the Samaritan was propelled by love and compassion and went to minister to the man who was beaten. That is obedience. That is a change of heart that propels us to action and, and not out of, of oh, I've, I've been asked five times, I, I probably better give this time. But from compassion in his heart. And the Sermon on the Mount, again, just flips this whole idea of, of obedience upside down. Where Jesus says, you have heard it said, and he talks about lust and about greed and about murder. And he talks really about the kingdom of God is about a changed heart. So the apostle Peter here calls on us to be obedient children. 
And then we're also confronted with another blade on this propeller. In verse 15, it then goes on to says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I always struggled with this, still struggle. But in my mind as, as a teen and as a young adult, I always saw holiness as just another perfected rung of obedience. Which is, I think, completely false and wrong perception of that. Holiness is something that when we even mention it, I think we draw back a little bit and become a little bit intimidated. Obedience, maybe not so much because we kind of have a little bit of an idea of what we may think obedience is, but again, as we've seen, true obedience is that in which we are pleased to want to be moved by the gospel in our lives to Christ. But holiness, we had the passage read earlier from from Isaiah chapter 6. And there Isaiah was confronted with the holiness of God. And and as a human being, to be confronted with the holiness of God is just too much for us. And so when we come to this idea of holiness, we, or I'll speak for me, kind of just want to put that in a corner and, well, let's go on to the next topic. But we can't do that. For the scriptures have said, be holy as I am holy. And it forces us to wrestle with what some have called the in him principle. We can't be in him and not be holy, for he is holy. So we must be conforming more and more to his image. And and we like to put that into, you know, a, a, a catechism question, you know. Oh, yes, we, we want to be conformed to the image of Christ. Well, what does that mean? That means we want to be holy. So what was the result for Isaiah? Confronted with a holy God. Well, here's what it's not, and here's what perhaps is what confuses some of us, or and that is, we've always thought holiness is, is, again, a higher level of obedience. And what that means is we've had throughout history people withdrawing themselves and going out to live in caves, to live on top of poles, to live some sort of ascetic life uh, in which all they do day and night is meditate on the word. Not that meditating on the word is, is bad, but we've somehow formed in our, in our thinking 
that holiness is to be something other than what we are in our day-to-day lives. Gospel comes to us where we are. And we still continue to live our lives, go to our jobs, raise our families. And so we don't have to withdraw from society to be holy. Really, we're called to be holy within the context of society. Just a couple of thoughts along this line. Isaiah 6, the holiness of God. Isaiah was was impressed with it in a mighty and a powerful way. And then God asked a question. Who will go for me? What's Isaiah's response? Hear my Lord, send me. The impression of the holiness of God develops a pure heart ready to respond to God. Let me say that again. When the holiness of God is impressed upon us, it will develop a pure heart ready to respond to God. Is your heart a responsive heart? Is your heart a heart that's saying, Lord, what are you putting before me that I just need to do without question? I'm going to back up a little bit because when it comes to obedience, really it's a matter of trust. Do we trust that God has our best interest? And if we trust God in obedience, that when we are impressed with his holiness, our faith will be ready to respond. Lord, I don't really know how to do this, but you put this on my heart. Lord, I really don't know where this is going to take me and what the consequences are going to be, but Lord, you've impressed this on my heart. And as an obedient child and knowing you are holy, here I am, Lord, send me. I think the other passage that I'd like us just to consider just briefly is in Philippians chapter 2, where we're, we're told there, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And again, that that phrase, have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. So, So holiness is really as much of an attitude or more of an attitude of our hearts and minds than it is sitting in some cave telling everybody we're holy. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, the mighty ruler of the universe, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming, what? Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The holiness of God is by its very essence in nature a humble heart. Emptied of all self. Holiness, developing a pure heart ready to respond to God, developing a humble heart, listening to God. The third blade of this propeller, I'll take you down to verse 22. Having purified your souls, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So what are we called to be as his children? We're called to be obedient. We're called to be holy, and we're called to love one another earnestly. I would propose to you that this is the most difficult of the three. Why? Because you have to love somebody like me. And if you knew me as I know me, you may not want to love me. I have all sorts of, of vices. I can be a very selfish individual. And I might be from a different place and have different likes than you. You know, I, I really do appreciate. And, you know, the church is not a club. Because clubs, you know, you have things in common. You have a golf club. You assume everybody goes there to golf. Or they golf if they go there. Or a tennis club. Or a polo club. Or a knitting club. Or a quilting club. People gather together because they have a common interest. You know, I look across this congregation, there could be as many different interests as there are people. Differences have a tendency to create division. Jesus' prayer for his saints, for his believers, prior to his death, 
in John 17 is what? That we may be one. Unity is a doctrine we don't spend enough time on. Division is easy. We know how to fight. We know how to disagree. We know how to put our opinions out there. Christ calls us to be united. There's only one way to be united. That is to love one another earnestly. I love how he added that qualifier. He doesn't just say, love one another. Then we would come up with a checklist of what I think it means to love you, and I'd say, yeah, I've done pretty good. But he adds this, love one another earnestly, which to me just adds a whole new element to what my love is supposed to be as far as its intent, as far as its desire, as far as its practice. I don't just sit back and say, well, I, I see them once a week on Sundays from you know, 11 to noon. It, am I not loving one another? If you love someone earnestly, you'll spend time with them. You'll have an interest in them. You'll know how to bear one another's burdens. You'll know how to pray for one another. You'll know how to care for one another. You'll know how to build one another up and encourage one another. The gospel. How mighty and wonderful a thing. How precious How magnificent that propels us. Is the gospel being pushed into your life? Is it moving you to not just to outward obedience, but to obedience of the heart? Is the gospel pushing into your life? Is it propelling you forward for a desire of holiness, a willingness of service? Is the gospel pushing and propelling in your life not just to selfishly seek your own interest, but to love one another? earnestly 
my fellow exiles. That's what life is about while we're here. And it's a short time. It's a very short time. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of salvation. And it's a little bit frightening and intimidating when we really get a bigger picture of what the gospel really means. Not only is it something that the angels long to look into, but it's something that you intend to use and work in our lives while we are here on this earth. Lord, forgive us when we have taken your word as somewhat of a checklist of things to try to make ourselves better. But Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would convict us and that you would call us to a right sense of obedience, that we would be driven by our compassion that you have given to us, that we would be driven to obedience because we trust you completely and wholly. And Lord, that we would not be afraid of holiness, but we would be drawn to it for we know you, O God, are holy. And for us to not want holiness is to not want you. Lord, we want to be drawn to you. Draw us to holiness. And Lord, draw us to love one another earnestly. Help us to be forgiving as you have forgiven. Help us to be merciful as you have granted mercy. And we pray these things, asking you accomplish them by your spirit. And in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your psalters to Psalm number 25. Earlier we sang the A selection. Let's stand now. We conclude singing the B selection. 25, selection B. (laughs) 